everybody. Welcome to this episode of Hey Cohen, coming to you live from the Western here in Sydney with our incredible K2 Elites. <laughs> to my right, I have my sidekick, Matthias Holmbaum, also known as the Swedish Doctor. That is right. All right, so the first question today uh, comes from Jong, from the audience. How can I start enjoying the process of doing regular social media posts? How do I start enjoying the process? Yeah. Ah, look, that's, I think you could, you could almost apply that question to almost any context. Like, how do I start enjoying exercise? How do I start you know, enjoying playing with my children? If you don't, as an example. And to me, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, I think Mark Boris said this the other day, it's a values equation. It's about being able to identify in the moment what values are being met that you're unconscious of when you're doing it. Because has anyone here ever done something before that you hated, but then all of a sudden you realized it was giving you something that you didn't know, and then the moment you realized it was giving you something that you didn't know, but the thing that you didn't know it gave you was something that you liked, all of a sudden you're like, liked doing it? Who's like, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> I'll repeat that again. I don't know, I've, I've had situations before where there are things that I have to do and I don't enjoy them. And when I know that I have to do them, I ask myself this question, what is the benefit of this? How is this serving me? What skills, knowledge, and experience is this giving me that I, didn't ha that I wouldn't have if I didn't do it? Now, I use that application in a whole range of scenarios, but for me, one of the things I've learned, you know, this started like, gosh, almost uh, 15, 20 years ago when I came up with this thing called the Fortune 50 list, and the Fortune 50 list turned into the Fortune 500 list, which was when I'd sit down with a client and I was trying to change their mindset, you know, and this was in the early stages of me studying neurobiology, and I, uh, I understood the, the importance of connecting neurons and like getting certain neurons to connect and others to disconnect. And I started to realize the way that you connect neurons is by creating new thoughts. And the way that you create new thoughts is by you know, being very conscious in the direction of either the questions that you're asking yourself or the things that you want to think. And when you ask yourself you know, the question, what is the 500 benefits of doing social media? And you literally come up with 500 answers you know, that are legitimate benefits. All of a sudden you create 500 new neural networks. And the more you read those answers, the more charges get actually sent down those networks and the stronger those connections become. And all of a sudden, the networks that used to say, oh, I really fucking hate, because you know, right now there's a set of networks that go, every time I do social media, they get fired and they go, oh, I fucking hate this. It reminds me of this and this and this, and I don't enjoy those experiences. But the goal is to throw charge down different and new neural networks, because when we do that, those other networks don't get the charge. And when those other networks don't get the charge, the synapses start to weaken and they start to move away from the new neurons and as a result they become less likely to be triggered and that's when we call a trigger like has anyone here heard the term triggered you know tr a trigger is when you actually send a charge down a particular neural network that's strong and if you have a strong trigger you have a strong neural network which means you are going to be easily manipulated and controlled by external events and forces and for me it's like how do you maintain ultimate control is you remove you become absent of all triggers and how do you become absent of all triggers well first of all you have got to become conscious of the triggers that are there and then you need to repattern them and the way that you repattern them is the exact same way that I just discussed with the trigger for I hate social media, you just start looking about what the benefits are and all of a sudden you develop a new trigger. And instead of having a trigger that pisses you off, all of a sudden you have a trigger that actually lights you up. And you go from hating social media and hating doing social media, and it becomes a real drag, and all of a sudden you fucking love social media and you love doing it because it's actually really exciting because you start to see all the things that it gives you. So to me, you know, it, it's, a, it's a values equation. And to me, a values equation is literally binary. It's like, how do you create, you know, you've got ones and zeros. And over here, when it comes to doing social media right now, I've got lots of zeros. There's no value, no value, no value, no value. And over here, what we want to do is we want to create lots of ones. 
And the one is the value. The zero isn't. The zero is the negative, okay? The one is the value. So how do we create more ones on this side so that all of a sudden, instead of having a pile of zeros, we have 500 ones. And when we have 500 ones, we have a stack of values. And I'm not talking about you know, a value from a psychological perspective, although that's how it translates psychologically. Does this make sense? I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking multiple layers of psychology, neurology, and neurochemistry here, but that's the ultimate equation. When you become ultimately conscious of how your brain works and how you direct charge through different neurons, you fundamentally take complete control of the programming of the, of the, of the operating system. You, ha you have one of the most, powerful the most powerful operating system ever constructed by humanity. You know, they're they're even right now, you know, quantum computing is the only computer that is you know, set to surpass the, the processing power of the human brain. But what most of us don't realize is it's sitting running autonomously you know, with, with, you know, with an unconscious program and but it's not until you realize that you can actually sit down in the seat, all of a sudden one day you wake up, who's seen that movie? Oh, fuck, what's it called? Uh, it's that kid's movie. It's the one about emotions. Inside Out. Inside Out. Like, watch that movie. There's a great quote from that movie. Like, uh, it says, emotions are like kids. Um, you know, you don't, wanna, you, don't, you don't want them driving the car, but you, you don't want to stuff them in the trunk either. You know, and so for me, you know, the thing that I like about that movie is there's this whole bunch of emotions that are sitting there controlling the game. And we literally, and this is the thing, we literally are controlling the whole game. Like the whole, whether you want to call it a game, whether you want to call it a simulation, whether you want to call it a simulation within a simulation, or whether you want to just call it, you know, reality, whatever your construct is that works for you, there is an ultimate ability to sit within a, to sit in a seat and start consciously directing the program, consciously coding the hard wiring and program new behaviors, program new thoughts. You know, the, new thoughts don't happen by accident. And there's a, there's a real beauty, there's a real artist, there's a real... Uh, artistry, is that a word? Yeah, there's a real, to me, when you repattern a psychology, there's a real artistry to it because you are, you, you're molding, you're crafting, you're working with plasticine. And the, to me, the brain is like this massive plasticine that you get to mold, you get to shape, and you, know, you really have the power to, to shape it in anything you want, to do whatever you could dream of. And whether that's go to Mars or you know, build an orphanage in Thailand, it's, it's a powerful thing. All right, uh, I've got a question here from Omar. Where is the fine line between trying to recover a staff member who's not performing at the top and fire him? And on what parameters? How to recover. Resuscitation. Um, CPR. Has anyone here ever tried to apply CPR to a team member that you knew was already dead? Um, you know, sometimes it can be a really tireless task. To me, the, the question is how do you know when to let go? Yeah. Is that basically it? For me, it's a very intuitive process. I think there's a, there's a lot of logic that you can apply to, 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 to the point where you know when it's time for someone to go because you look at certain behaviors, um, you, know, you look at certain interactions, you look at performance. So to me, you know, when you're looking and you're considering that equation, there, are three, there would be three things I'd look at. I'd look at performance. Okay, what are the factors that I need to assess from a performance perspective? The second thing I'd look at is culture. What are the cultural indicators that I need to look at? And the third thing I look at, which is the dominant one, which is intuitively what feels right. You know, and this reminds me, actually this is, a really, this is really interesting. Uh, this is going back about six years ago. Um, I had a, an operations manager, general manager in place at the time, and she was an incredibly important part of the business. Like a vital, vital part of the business, and she knew it. And it got to the point where she started abusing that power, where she started you know, you know, threatening and implying and you know, becoming, has anyone ever had that experience before where you have a really valuable team member and they start to work it out and they start throwing their fucking weight around? 
And I remember one day, I remember this, this took me like 12 months, 12 months of me going, ah, oh, fuck, I'm being played here. Ah, oh, fuck, I hate this feeling. Like, oh, fuck, why can't they just do it for what they want to do rather than just trying to set it up in, a, in some kind of a, a game, game theory scenario? And I sat it down and long story short, I actually, uh, I let her go. I fired her on the spot. And she said to me, this business will not run without me. And I said, we'll find a way. And she goes, you do realize that this will be the death, the death rattle in your business. And I said, I don't believe that's true, but I really appreciate everything you've done. I don't want this to end badly. I'm grateful for everything you've done, but I just think that our time together has actually ended. Now, to me, I, was, um, I felt very confident in that moment because I was intuitively got driven, but then she basically went and packed up her desk and left. And this is someone who had worked for me at the time for, I think, for about four or five years. And as soon as she left, guess what, guess what set in? Fucking, no, no, reality, then pain. Reality said, it's like, holy shit, you know, what have I done? And then I just kept coming back to, you know, this is the right move. Now, here's, what, here's the really interesting part. Guess what happened next? We doubled in the next three months. And that, to me, was a really, tr a really, a really strong indication that no one man is ever more important than the mission. And oftentimes, you know, people will come into your life and they may appear to be really important. And it's not that they're not important. But there's always got to, to, to me, justice has to always prevail. And I, I hate being put in a position where I feel like I'm being played. Can anyone relate to this? And so for me, you've always got to have that faith. You've always got to have that trust that even if you do let them go, you just got to trust everything will be all right. Shit could hit the fan. Shit could go up and down for a little while, but you just got to have that faith. But to me, intuitively, is it Omar? Mm -hmm. You know what to do. You know when to do it. And my advice is just trust yourself and get on with the job. All right. Troy asks... How do you get people to believe in a massive idea that has not been done uh, that will help a massive problem we all have? Passion, energy, and the ability to communicate and connect values. Um, it kind of gets, it's almost reflective of the first question. You know, how do you influence anyone to do anything is you connect values. And values to me, are, they're like neurons, okay? Uh, everyone has a collection of values. They're, uh, they're typically assimilated in a hierarchy, you know, from one all the way through and down. Um, you know, markets have value. Individuals have values. Uh, markets have value. So every category has a value. Um, you know, every individual has a value. Those values can be situational. They can be circumstantial, but there are also hardwired values as well. But the way that you influence anyone at a very high level is by understanding who you're speaking to. And when you understand who you're speaking to and you understand what's important to them, then you communicate your ideas and your solutions in a way that connect those neurons together. How do I actually create, and this is, by the way, this is great for you guys from a marketing perspective. It's like, how do I communicate my message in a way which lands with the values of the market? Because if you can communicate to the values of the market, all of a sudden, guess what they're going to be? Interested. But if you don't communicate, because has anyone here ever had someone, ever been in a, a networking or a, you've been to an event before and someone starts talking to you about something that you have no idea about, that you have no interest in whatsoever? Has anyone ever been in that situation? What happens literally in the first 10 seconds? Who fucking checks out and starts looking for the door? Because there is no, there is no value, there's no value association in there. So as a result, you place no import, your, literal, your, your reptilian brain places no importance because there's nothing exciting, there's nothing new, there's nothing that's you know, connected to anything that's important to you. So your brain literally shuts down and diverts power. So to me, what you want to do is you want to be communicating in a way that lights the brain up. And the way that you light the brain up is by communicating to the values that have been pre-wired and organized in the brain of the individual that you're communicating to, or the market at large. 
And if you want to do this surgically, then you sit down and you get to know the person that you're communicating with. If it's a team member, you get to know them. You find out what is important to you. What are the most important things to do? And do you know how you find out what someone's values are? You say, so what do you do with your spare time? It's a great, web, it's a great place to start. What are the things that are most important to you? If you could have all the money in the world, what would you do with it? Where would you like to see itself in the next 10 years? Okay. So tell me, what are, what are the things that you do when you do them? You lose time and space. What do you fantasize about? Okay, maybe don't ask them that, but, but, <laughs> but you, you get my point. Like, what are the things that you think about on a regular basis? You know, what are the things that when you are engaged in talking about them that you light up like a Christmas tree? Like, what are the things that are really important to you? That, to me, is the best question. Like, what's important to you? You know, what are the things that are important to you in your life right now? And they will, you know, all you've got to do then is just shut up and listen, and they will just start telling you what their values are. And then all you've got to do is just connect the dots. You know, I've got this. This is what it does. How will this make this value better? You know, if, if you find out that, you know, family is an important value, it's their, you know, their top value, you, you would be asking yourself the question, how does, how does my flask give this lady greater, greater quality of time with her family? Well, first of all, sorry, what was your name? Yvette. Yvette drinks three cups of tea every morning before 9 a.m. And every time she, cook, she cooks a cup of tea, that's how fucking good I am at making tea, right? I cook tea. Every time she makes a cup of tea, it's going to take anywhere between three to six minutes. Let's just say it takes between three to six minutes. This flask actually contains the contents for three cups of tea and can keep it warm for up to four hours. So as a result of you using our flask event, not only will you be able to save about three sixes of 20, six of 12, 18 minutes a day, you'll be able to take those 18 minutes a day and actually spend it with your eight-month-old son that you absolutely adore, that you want to spend more time with before you take him to daycare, before you head off to work. Is that something that's important to you? It is $493. <laughs> but do you guys get my point, right? It's about how do we connect the neurons? How do we connect the values? And, you know, if you can do that... To me, influence, you know, there was a great Russian, um, ah, she was like, an, uh, like a very a historical figure. I can't remember what her name was, but she was a, a great ruler. I can't remember if she was a dictator or not, but I remember this quote. Catherine. Catherine who? Catherine the Great. And someone once asked her, you know, how do you wield so much power? She says, I, I don't wield my power. I just get those to do that which they would already do. I'll say that again. I just get those to do that which they would already do. What do we already do? The things that are important to us. How do we get people to do what we want? Show what we want them to do is something that is important to them. That is what they will do. Does this make sense? If you, if you, can, if you can grasp, you know, if you can grasp that concept, you will become powerful beyond measure as a communicator and influencer because that's ultimately the highest form of communication is the alignment of what's important. Wonderful. Next question is from Karen. Karen? Yes. Rhymes with Marin. It does. As business owners, how can we prepare for the next financial crisis that many predict is on the way? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great question. Um, I'm in two minds. Like, I'm kind of blessed and cursed in the same, in the same sentence with this. Uh, my dad, uh, for, a, for a, a good period of his life, uh, was one of the top um, economists in the world. Whenever we get together, we, we talk economics. Um, but I also am looking at what's going on at large. Now, what's interesting is they've been predicting a major meltdown for quite some time. And, it's only and the indicators have been there for quite some time, but it's only now that there is a real momentum. And what's interesting is most economists that you speak to, they'll say, well, look, on one hand, all the indicators are there. But on the other hand, 
you know, there's every possibility that, you know, we could just keep printing money and et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to find a one-handed economist. Does this make sense? Which is someone, because what do you think every economist is trying to do? They're trying to fucking hedge because they don't want to be wrong. Okay, because they, if, they, if they say, well, on one hand, it could go this way, but on the other, it could go this way. And no matter which way, they go, oh, see, I did say it could go that way. And economists, as I've learned with my dad, they fucking love to be right. Uh, and so as a result, they often have two hands, which in theory is very helpful. But um, my personal belief is the potential for an economic meltdown at a global level is very high. Uh, the trade war that is going on right now between the US and China um, it certainly has the potential to, to trigger some kind of economic event. You know, if there was to be some kind of a skirmish in the South China Sea, um, that has the power to trigger some kind of a, you know, a financial event that could create... Because right now, it, it doesn't take... The, 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 the world, in my, in my opinion, on one hand, the, <laughs> um, there are many economies around the world that you know, are, are appearing to do well, but they, they, you know, they're doing well fundamentally at a, at, a, at, a, at a visual perspective. So to me, I think it's, it's not too far to fathom, on the other hand, that it would take a very small event to trigger you know, a, a chain reaction. So the answer to the question is stockpile cash okay, or gold, but my advice is stockpile cash. Uh, now is not the time, in my opinion, to be investing in property, although if that's what you do, please, by all means, go ahead. My, in my opinion right now is you should be working your absolute tail feather off okay, to be increasing the revenues and the profits of your business and you should be putting it in a war chest. Okay, and you should be sitting there and have this war chest ready because when that meltdown comes, and it's got to come, historically it always does. Okay? I don't think we're ever going to reach that, the, the age where you know, we have universal income and you know, that we will see anyway and you know, all markets are stable and you know, all connected and correlated and, 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 and symbiotic in many respects. What I believe when it happens is there will be the next generation of major wealth that will be created. Every economic downturn produces enormous levels of wealth because what happens is when the stock market um, goes belly up, when the property market goes belly up, those with liquidity, you know, those either sitting on gold or those that are either sitting on cash, they just swoop in and they buy these assets that were, you know, these shares that were at $700 and they come in and they swoop them, they get them for 70 bucks. You know, they get these, in some respects, you know, there are some people that literally sit there and wait for, you know, $8 million properties to fall in value to $2 million and they sweep in and they buy it for cash. You know, and then they go and park themselves in it or they park one of their kids in it and four years later they then sell it again for $8 million, okay, and they've got no capital gain tax, they've just made a clean $6 million. You know, some people will fractionalise that and they won't go and buy one massive property. You know, they'll go into a market that's been heavily affected where you know, properties have gone from you know, six or 800,000, they've lost 30, 40, 50, 60% of the value. They'll, go and they'll, they'll accumulate you know, uh, a range of assets and they'll fractionalise that money rather than grabbing one large asset, they might grab 10 assets. And those assets will rebound because when, when things crash, they always rebound. And I'm telling you right now, and please listen to me, if you, stockpile, if you start stockpiling cash right now, I promise you, in the next two, three, four years, an opportunity will present itself and you will have an opportunity to create enormous wealth. Not a little bit of wealth, I'm talking significant wealth that could potentially last for generations, depending on the amount of cash that you have stockpiled and how intelligently you actually invest that money when a correction does ultimately come. So for me, my answer is cash. And so my advice is work hard, be smart, 
avoid the fancy things, you know, uh, go camping. If, if, you know, if you want to have a nice holiday, go camping. Yeah, some of the most incredible holiday spots that I, you know, that you can see around this country are, uh, are in $5 night camping sites, you know, and, and if you really want to, you can get yourself like a really pimped out tent. Um, you can, like, uh, and that's for me, I don't know, my, my relationship with money has changed significantly in the last 15 years, uh, especially in the last 10 years. You know, going back 15 years ago, you know, I had a whole wardrobe full of uh, custom-tailored suits. You know, I had you know, a, a range of sports cars. I lived in a, a beautiful house, uh, you know, five-bedroom house on the water on the Gold Coast. And you know, every time I walked into a servo, I'd always walk out with gadgets. I couldn't stop spending money. Like, I was one of those people. I still remember my first year of business. I made $780,000. And that year, I spent $1.2 million on my Amex. <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> okay, okay. It, uh, it didn't equate well. Whereas now, you guys see how I dress. Like I, I, and I have a stylist. I dress like a bum. And I can say, I look, you're like, yeah, I can't have a stylist. I actually have a stylist. Okay, she just puts me in better quality t-shirts and jeans. You know, I don't really, I live in a very modest house. Uh, the only thing that I really spend money on is experiences, like, you know, flying around to train with, you know, either with a, you know, the Navy SEALs or European Special Forces or, you know, I've got a trip coming up next year to go and do some training with the CIA in Virginia um, or holidays, you know, either with my mates or, or with my son, uh, you know, whether that be throughout the year or Christmas time. And food. I, I love really good quality food. But apart from that, I am a, I'm a fucking squirrel. I am. And what's interesting is the contrast because I used to be so opposite to that. I used to be so spendthrift. I was, you know, always wanting to impress, always wanting to buy rounds, always... I was just that guy, and it took a lot of an enormous amount of discipline to change that. And now, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm an absolute squirrel, and I think that's going to pay off. And I, if you guys can follow suit with that, honestly believe it will be one of the greatest, greatest habits that you can develop, that you can pass on to your kids. Because what's really interesting is when you look at high net worth, when you study high net worth, I've been studying high net worth now for almost 25 years, the majority of high net worth are very, very frugal. You know, I'm talking very, very frugal. You know, have you, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the, the saying, how do, you, you know, how do they create copper? You try and take a two cent piece off a billionaire. Because they won't let go. And it, and it, fuck, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> it was a bad joke. But anyway, that answers the question. Thank you very much. All right, Sarah asks, Herman. Sarah, what's your biggest lesson this year? Ooh. So many, so many, so many, so many. My biggest lesson this year, Okay, um, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a control one, a bit of a letting go one. Um, in our organisation, we, we do have strong leadership in place, uh, but for the first six, seven months of this year, I really did myself a disservice by trying to create a much higher level of visibility in our organisation. And what I mean by that, I'd go and do a NISI, and then literally the next day, I'd be back at work, and I'd be at work in the office for, in some cases, the next three weeks straight. And um, then I would basically go straight into a mastermind. Uh, oh, no, sorry, I'd do the tour, okay? And then I'd be straight into the office, and then we'd do the, the mastermind. I'd be, uh, the, the, no, no, I'd be straight back in the office. Anyway, my point being is I tried so hard to create a maximum level of visibility that I actually burnt myself out this year a little bit. Um, thankfully, it wasn't as bad as what it could have been because I've been intermittent fasting, uh, I've been training really hard, uh, and so that kind of softened the landing. Here's one of the things that I've learned. The, healthy you, the healthier you are, the fitter you are, the softer the landing is when you burn out. And the, uh, the unhealthier you are and the unfitter you are, the, 
you don't land softly, you crash land. And so for me this year, I did burn out, but I, I had a soft landing in respect to other burnouts that I've had. And so for me, I'm now, the, my biggest lesson is the importance of learning to trust others to step up and developing others to step up as leaders within the organisation um, and really allowing myself and giving myself, most importantly, the permission to step back a little bit and have a bit of a rest. You know, spend more time with my son. Um, you know, uh, who's someone, uh, what, was, um, what was his name? Not Sebastian, Terry, Nigel. Um, he hit me square in the eyes because he said he has, every month he picks his son up from school, once. And there's one thing that my son has been asking me to do. He says, Daddy, why do you never pick me up from school? And as soon as Nigel said that, man, it punched me in the gut. And so for me, you know, I want to, when I have the days that I have my son, because when I'm here, I have him, you know, three, four days a week, I want to be able to drop him to school every week. I want to pick him up from school every day uh, with, in the times that I have. I want to be able to play with him for a couple of hours every single day. So for me, the biggest lesson is learning how to let go and giving, my, giving myself permission to spend more time doing the things that actually fill my cup rather than just spending more time focusing on things that empty my cup. Thanks, Mum. Work hard, play hard. Kat is saying, hey, Corwin. Hey, Kat. How do you overcome judgment of self? Look, stop it. Look, I, there, I, I, I could answer that question a whole range of ways, but I'm just going to allow myself to be guided. For me, uh, I can relate to that on so many ways because uh, I, I, I have historically been very self-critical. I have historically you know, given myself multiple you know, savage beatings that you know, in a court of law would probably you know, be framed as grievous bodily harm. But one of the things that I've learned... Could you answer the question again, just so I make sure I know? How do I overcome judgment? How do I overcome, overcome judgment self? To me, so it, it, oh, the obvious answer is accept yourself for who you are. But sometimes that's easier said than done, you know, because sometimes we have baggage that we're carrying. Um, and one of the things, like I'll give you, I'll be very, very, very um, uh, open with you guys right now. There was a period of my life. Um, oh wow! Okay, we're going there. Uh, in my early, in my early twenties where um, I would look in the mirror and I would slap myself across the face and punch myself in the face, which is the equivalent of self-harm, right? And I used to say the most horrible things to myself, like horrible, horrible things. And um, the sad part is, at the time, I actually believed it. It was true. But then over time, I started engaging in activities that brought out the best in me because at the time, I was engaging in activities that were bringing out the worst in me. And when you engage in activities that bring out the worst in you, it's really easy to hate yourself. Okay? It's really easy to judge yourself and it's really easy to beat yourself up. Uh, and that was one of those periods where I was walking across um, the Story Bridge in, in Brisbane and I, I basically took my phone and I threw my phone off the bridge. And I, and I literally moved house. I didn't tell any of my friends that I moved house. And I started engaging in behaviours that brought out the best in me. And when I started to engage in behaviours that brought out the best in me, it allowed me to look at myself and actually start to acknowledge very consciously and deliberately, wow, I'm actually, I'm not a bad guy. You know, I'm not a bad person. I'm actually, I'm actually a decent human being. And the more I engaged in things that brought out the best in me, the more I saw the side of myself that I really started to love, or like at first. You know, I almost had to start, it sounds really weird, I almost had to start dating myself. So at first I had to get to know me again in a different context because the context that I knew myself in, the, in the, initially I didn't like me. And so I got to know myself in a different context. I started hanging out with different people. 
you know, and I started realizing that, wow, in, in this context, I'm actually a different person. Has anyone noticed that they show up differently depending on who they show, who they're hanging out with, right? And so I was very conscious. I became, I wasn't very, I became conscious of that. And so at first I started, you know, doing things that made me go, wow, I'm not a bad guy. I actually, I kind of like you. And then over time I started to go, wow, I, I think I'm actually falling in love. And I know that sounds weird, but it's the honest truth. I started to slowly fall in love with who I was becoming. And what was it, what's most interesting now in reflection, who I was becoming was who I, or who I was always. You know, I was, you know, my mum, God bless her. She used to call me her happy chappy. Happy little chappy. Because I was always happy. I was always smiling. Nothing could ever get me down. I would bounce back so quickly at everything. Uh, and then I, then I basically reached puberty. <laughs> and hormones kicked in and I started hanging out with the wrong crowd and you know, it, the, the story is quite cliche. And so what I discovered was through getting to know myself in a different context, I started to rediscover who I'd always been. I'd just forgotten. You know, it's much like when I talk to you guys about the stuff at Nail and Scale and we talk about you know, the quantum stuff and how the heart and the brain and the connection, how we're constantly sending information and receiving information. And, and I say to people, who is hearing this for the first time but you know, finds it very familiar? You know, and a lot of people put their hands up. And to me, you know, it was very much that experience. It was like, wow, this is familiar. This is who I was the whole time. I just kind of lost sight of it. And I and honestly believe that we all know, we all have the power to create. We all have the user's manual. We just forgot. You know, somewhere along you know, the lineage of our history, you know, the, the, the tablets, the scriptures, whatever was lost. And you know, we forgot how to take control not take control, we forgot to, we forgot how to embrace the power that we have and use it intentionally and very deliberately to create the things that we want. Thank yeah. you, Carl. You got it. Yeah. Well, time's up, Carl. Time's up. Oh, no, I'm loving this. <laughs> do you want to do one more? Can we do one more? Do you guys want to do one more? Yeah. All right, that's better be a good one. one. You guys having fun? Ah, this, this is the you have most, to say that. most upvoted question of mm. them all. All right. Here we go. Brace this yourself. is from Anonymous, by the way. Ooh. My wife is the biggest influence in my life, but it isn't on board with all my goals and, goals and aspirations. And it's holding me back from reaching them. Oh, Guidance, shit. please. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um... Look, I never like to be put in a situation where I tell someone what to do about their personal life. In a situation like this, I, I'd prefer to ask questions. And the questions that I would ask is, you know, what is really important to you? You know, and oftentimes in scenarios like this, people would often respond and say, well, family is important to you. And I'd say, and what else is important? You know, I'd basically try and elicit what their values are and then help them understand that in order for them to be happy, their values need to be met. That doesn't mean they have to run a multi-million dollar business. You know, we don't need to be running a multi-million dollar business to be happy. You know, you might just be happy in, you know, in, in the fact that you can become a little bit more profitable, make a little bit more money, you know, get at least two more days off every week or every month. And, you know, the wife is happy and you're happy. Okay. And that's everything that you might need. And if that's what you need, then, you know, my, my, my respect goes to you for, for understanding that. But, it, you know, similar to what I think it was Greg was saying before, it's important that you understand what's really important to you, not what you think is important to you. You know, Greg said before he thought he wanted to grow this really big business, but then he sat down and he looked and he goes, well, fuck, if I did that, I'd be miserable. 
but you know, I've spent I don't know how many years thinking this is something that I want. The other side of that question could be what's important to you? Well, ambition, fulfillment of purpose, you know, expression of potential, you know, achieving my highest potential, achieving my highest purpose. And if that's a higher value than family, then you have what's called a tangled hierarchy. Because you, your family might be on there, but if, if your purpose okay, is higher, then it's going to be tangled and it's going to feel a little bit messy. And that's a tough situation. And in those situations, my advice is um, don't, don't make rash decisions. You know, um, sit down and communicate very openly and ask questions and find out what's important to your partner. Because this could be a wife or a husband. Okay? This could be your boyfriend or girlfriend. This could be you know, your daughter or your son. It's a relationship. It's, it's within context of, some, of a level of intimacy. And when you find out what's important to someone, then you have the ability to be able to influence their perspective by showing them what it is that you're doing and how what it is that you're doing may be able to fulfill what's really important to them, but they just couldn't see that. You know, it's like connecting those neurons. You know, it's the values equation there might be the potential in this scenario where what you're pursuing, Anonymous, um, is the very thing that will allow your wife to have what it is that she's always wanted. But you've never sat down and had the conversation and communicated that in a way and explored what's important to her, what her dreams are, what her ambitions are, you know, what lights her up, what's important to her, and then actually been able to connect the dots and go, well, actually, if we're actually able to do this, if you can actually support us, we together on this journey, then that's going to enable us to do this. And if we can do this, what's going to be the benefit to these things that are important to you? And I'm not kidding. Like I've, I've, I've had clients that have gone through this process and literally the partner's gone, holy shit, and they've done a complete 180 on the spot, and all of a sudden, the biggest anchor has all of a sudden become a jet propellant. Well, what are we doing sitting here talking about this shit? Get out and do the work. You know, it literally can be that fast. Sometimes it's not. You know, I don't want to paint this magic pill scenario because, you know, one of the things that I've learned about marriage, you know, with the one that I've had is, you know, it's tough. And it's not just marriage. You know, being a boyfriend or a girlfriend is, is hard. You know, being a parent is hard. Being a son or a daughter is hard. Being a niece and a nephew, maybe not so much, but you get my point. Relationships are difficult. And the more openly we communicate in a neutral way, based on compassion and understanding, the greater potential we have to connect the things that help us relate. You know, it was uh, Stephen Covey who said, uh, seek first to understand in order to be understood. You know, because right now, Anonymous, you might feel very misunderstood, okay? But you don't understand what's, in, you may not understand what's important to your life, to your, to your wife, to your partner. So if you seek first to understand what's important to your partner, then she might, you might feel understood and she might understand why it is that you're pursuing what it is that you do. And that to me is the great, to me, the greatest gift is understanding. When you have some, you don't need, a, you don't need agreement. You don't need compliance. You know, I don't want to sit down with, you know, with every single person and say, yeah, I completely agree with everything you say. But the greatest gift that I think you can get in any two-way communication is say, you know what, I absolutely completely don't agree with you, but I understand where you're coming from. That to me is the greatest level of respect. The greatest level of respect that you can give someone is putting yourself in their shoes to understand them. You don't have to agree, okay? You don't have to get comply, but if you can understand, that is empathy. You know, and empathy to me is, is a substance that is more valuable than gold. And we have this alchemy within us. When you, you, know, when you seek first to understand and you create this, under, this ability to be understood, that to me is it's like liquid gold. And when you can create that gold in your life, 
yeah, a, a, lot, a lot of other areas of life become a lot easier. So I hope that helps, Anonymous, but uh, good luck on your journey. Thank you all. <laughs> For those of you who have any questions, hashtag HeyKerwin on all the major social platforms. Say hi to your mum for me.